Joshua Horns is a grad student at the University of Utah Biology Department, and he was working on a study about aggression and human evolution. And one thing he needed to look at is, is how we punch, what the hand does when we punch. So, Joshua, what did you do? So we wanted to see um, our hands, when you, when you put them into this, this buttressed fist that we can make, uh, does that mean that we can strike hard without hurting ourselves? That's kind of what we wanted to look at. Um, but this isn't really a study you can do in live humans. You can't really measure how much force or how much strain there is in their bones because um, people really don't like you cutting open their hands. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, we hatched the idea of using cadaver arms um, where we would manipulate them into different hand postures, and that way we could take recordings uh, from the bones in the hand and see how much force they were feeling, how much strain they were feeling. Wait, so are you, are you actually taking human cadaver arms and making them punch things? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So then what did you hit with it? So uh, the arm, once it was in the correct confirmation, that sat on a pendulum. And we pulled the pendulum back and let it swing down into a weight. Uh, it made contact with the weight at the bottom of the swing when all of its velocity was horizontal. So we were able to get these simultaneous recordings of how hard the hand was hitting, and then how much strain, how much the bones in the hand were changing shape. So did you, you how many arms and fists did you have? So we had, um, let me think, we ended up with, I think, eight male and one female arm. And did you, uh, did you name them? Did you have any, like, a favorite arm? <laughs> we didn't, I, I didn't favorite arm. Um, so the, the first arm we used was the, the female arm, and it we were working with it for months because it just it, it was such a delicate process and such an unusual process. And so we became very familiar with that arm, and uh, one of my lab mates named it Betty. Betty. Did Betty have a good punch? Betty, Betty had a decent punch. It, yeah, she was the first one, though. After... Um after a particularly good punch, did you give any of the cadaver arms a high five? <laughs> there, there was actually uh, there was one uh, bout of high fiving during the slap. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, when, when, how often do you get an opportunity like that? Never. <laughs> well, Joshua, thank you so much for telling us about what you did with those dead people's arms. Yeah, you bet. I enjoyed talking. This is How to Do Everything. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. We should say, uh, this show's already a little creepy. What with the cadaver hands. That was unusually gross for the top of the show. Uh, it's it's gonna remain creepy. Because it's almost Halloween. One thing about Halloween, you try and scare people. common way you scare people is by saying scary things like... I love you. You have a terrible disease. Uh, most commonly though, boo. Boo. And it's weird, with all the words available to us, all the scary words, how have we settled on boo? Boo. Lexicographer Jesse Scheidlauer, you know him, he's on the line with us now. So, Jesse, why boo? Any kind of onomatopoeic expression is hard to trace. With that said, what's interesting about boo, in English at least, boo was originally used as an expression of surprise. You know, broadly speaking, so that includes the Halloween sense, you know, to, to scare children. 
in English, by the 16th century, there were examples of the surprise noise that were spelled bo, either B-O or B-O-H. And when the Oxford English Dictionary wrote about this in the 1880s, uh, it said that this was a combination of consonant and vowel especially fitted to produce a loud and startling sound. This would have been, this would have been a short thing. This would have been bo, you know, it, you know to, to surprise someone. It wasn't boo. It wasn't a long boo. Uh, and in fact, if you look back in, in both Latin and Greek, there are words that are that begin also with bow uh, that mean you know like to roar or to bellow. Um, th- that doesn't mean that the English word comes from Latin or Greek. It just means that this sound, you know, the bow sound, was something that was clearly has been suited a long time for things that are you know for for noises of this sort, for surprising or loud noises. So, so there was a time when if I were going to sneak up behind someone to to give them a start, I'd I'd say bo. That's right. Yes. Wow. Um, the the long the the boo version again, as far as we can tell, these things are hard are hard to look at. Um, but certainly, a boo was in use by the early 18th century, uh, and there there was an example from the from the from 1718 uh, from a Scottish source that said boo is a word used in the north of Scotland to frighten crying children. Wait, uh, why would you f- so to make it worse? Uh, I guess to distract them. Uh, that's yeah. what I okay. wondered as well. Yes, I mean it might make them cry if they weren't already. But uh, but yes, this would would be would be to distract them when they're scared. So, they're not sad anymore. Yeah, you know, to change change their mood, change what they're being uh, what they're being emotional about from being sad to being scared. So if Socrates was going to sneak up on Plato, he would just be like, "Boo." Uh, it's quite likely. Jesse, thanks so much. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. Jesse Scheidlauer is the former editor-at-large of the Oxford English Dictionary. The other night, I was at a parent night at my son Lars's school. He's in first grade. Mm -hmm. And we're going around the room talking about our kids, telling you, tell me one interesting thing about your kid. And everybody starts talking about all the teeth their kids are losing. Sure. And one of the moms from South Africa says, but what do you guys do about the tooth mouse? And everybody kind of stops. And we're like, tooth mouse? But then something happens. The conversation moves on. We never got to ask, what is the tooth mouse? So I found out her name, emailed her, asked her if she would talk, tell us what the tooth mouse is. She says she's too shy, but her husband, Chris, uh, can do it. He'll do it. He is online with us now. So, Chris, what is a tooth mouse? Well, I mean, we like to have options back home. So um, we have uh, visits from the tooth mouse ordinarily. And uh, I suppose some kids have the tooth tooth fairy, but the tooth mouse is by far the more common of the two. So what you do is you leave a piece of cheese for the mouse to make sure the tooth mouse comes. And the tooth mouse comes and leaves you a few coins in your slipper, takes the cheese, and uh, takes the tooth as well so that it can build its house with the tooth. Now, when I imagine, say, the Easter bunny, I imagine a giant, the bunny the, a size, the size of a man. Yes. Is the tooth mouse uh, just a regular mouse, or is it a giant mouse? Having never seen the tooth mouse... Um, and there have been no documented sightings of tooth mouse, but I, I always imagined the tooth mouse to be small, 
because the piece of cheese that we leave and the tooth would leave them to carry away are both very small. So for the tooth fairy, usually you put the tooth under the kid's pillow. Yes. Or the kid puts the tooth under the pillow. And the next morning, the tooth fairy will have taken the tooth and left some sort of money. For the tooth mouse, you leave the tooth and a piece of cheese? Yes, and then the, then then you'll find the money in the morning. The piece of cheese may be an an a, um, an advance on the uh, um, on 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 the whole theory that 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 has run in my family, but it seemed like a good way to make sure that the mouse comes. Right. Okay. Because you don't you're not sure if the tooth is enough of a draw. Well, yeah, and there's a lot of teeth out there and a lot of slippers every night waiting to be uh, fetched. So what what is the um you mentioned that the the tooth mouse uses the teeth to build its its house? That's correct, yes. I I mean the tooth mouse sounds like a very nice animal. I have to say this house made of the teeth of children sounds scary. A little creepy. Ghastly. <laughs> we we've never we don't talk about the house much. Uh, the, <laughs> right. the presumption that the tooth is gone um and when the tooth is gone, well, I suppose we needed we we needed a very good explanation as to what's done with the teeth, and that seems like a good one. Yeah, although if you were if, if you were walking in the woods and you were lost and you came upon a house built out of the baby teeth of children, you'd probably you, run the other way. You would. I mean, if you want to if you want to extend it that far, I do think that it is a fairly haunting scenario, to be honest. But then giant bunnies walking around your house is pretty scary too, right? Mm. That's exactly right. A yeah. giant, a big fat guy breaking into your house one night Coming, every year. The, a home invasion. Well, Chris, thank you so much for explaining the tooth mouse. Not at all. Not at all. I can't believe you guys haven't heard about him before. I'm presuming it's a, it's a, it's a him, but uh, there's no reason why it should be. I guess I never thought about that in different countries there would be different magical characters that would, would visit children. Sure. We have Santa Claus. Oh! They have uh, Père Noël in France. I, I'm curious how, how many others are out there. Cindy Dell is an anthropologist who studies these things. So, Cindy, first of all, have you heard of the tooth mouse? Yes. Uh, what happens for the tooth mouse may depend on what country the child lives in. Um, let's see, for example, in Mexico, they toss the tooth into the mouse's hole. So if you have a hole in your house for a mouse, you would toss the tooth right in there uh, to offer it to the um, mouse after it came out. Whoa. Um, in other places, they might do other things. In fact, in Vietnam, they, leave the, they take the tooth and they toss it over the roof of the house, and they call out to the rats, not the mouse, but the rats, and this is what they say. They say, Oh, rats, oh, rats, since your teeth are both long and pointed, you must work in such a way that mine shall grow as quickly as they fall out. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, are there other uh, regional ones that I, I might not have heard of? Oh, I've got one for you that you've never heard of, I'm sure. Um, this was traditional in a uh, place called Spreewald. And in that country, the parents would swallow their child's tooth. Hmm. The mother would child would swallow it if it was a boy's tooth, and the father would swallow it if it was a girl's tooth. And what, was, what, were they, what were they trying to do by doing that? Well, I think they're uh, certainly paying attention to what gender the child is, and um, they're taking the tooth into themselves. It's so special. 
was it was it a like a ceremony or was it just like yeah this hey. is a ceremony oh it was okay uh, um you know this is what we call a rite of passage this is where kids go from being having baby teeth to grown-up teeth and um in each country they mark it a little bit differently a, a different creature comes or a different thing happens but they all are doing it for the same reason which is to help the child during a tough time when his, his uh, tooth might hurt when it's coming out, especially if dad pulls it out. And there might be blood, and some kids are scared of it. And some kids worry that they're not going to be able to eat again, and that would mean they, they really could be in danger. So these characters are really wonderful things. They come, they help the kids through the difficulty. And furthermore, when the kid leaves their tooth under the pillow for the tooth fairy, and they get money for it, they're getting something that shows they're a real grown-up, that money. In our country, that's what we think of as having being independent. Well, Cindy, thank you so much. You're most welcome. Now the part of our show where we'd like to take a second and tell you about some of our sponsors. And they like us to tell you about them, too. Getty Images is one of our sponsors today. Great photography has the power to move culture, highlight injustice, bring understanding, and change minds. Getty Images believes that the difference between looking and seeing is the power of the image. Getty Images provides the highest quality collection of images from world-renowned artists curated with expertise. So visit GettyImages.com and see what an image can do. We're also supported this week by our old friends at Stamps.com. Stamps.com helps businesses avoid time-consuming trips to the post office. Use your own computer and printer to print out official U.S. postage for any letter or package, and then the mailman picks it right up. No more wasting time going to the post office or wasting money on expensive postage meters. Those are the worst. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use the promo code EVERYTHING for a special offer. A four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone, and type in everything. One new message. Hi, Mike and Ian. This is JL, and I have a question. Um, my question is, whenever you do a spot for a sponsor, you instruct people to go to the website and enter everything for a special promotion. And my question is, how long would it take for a person to type in everything, as in every word in the English language? Thanks. That's actually a great question. On the line with us now is Paul J.J. Payak. He's with the Global Language Monitor. Paul, words are added all the time. What is your best estimate of how many words there are right now? As of January 1st, it'd be 1,035,840. Wow, and how long would it take to type everything? Well, what you have to do is assume how many letters are there in a word, okay? So what we did is we looked at the, the King James Version of the Bible, we looked at all dictionaries, and then we looked at when people type, how, do you, how does Guinness record a typing record and things of that nature. And it seems that they, they, when you're doing a, a long typing project, they assume five letters per word. Okay. Okay. Five letters per word. And so the typical speed of a typist is 90 words per minute. You know, somebody that's pretty good, but you can need somebody more than pretty good. So the record is 174 words per minute. 
Wow. And let's say if we're doing something, they can they carry that on for 50 minutes an hour. They okay. have 10 minutes break. That's so cool. if we had that and they and they worked on our project for eight hours a day, right? Okay. It would take 744 days to finish typing. And then the other words that were created in the two years while you're typing it, there's another 61.18, so I have to add that together. Wow. So as you're typing, as you're typing everything, the list just keeps getting longer. Yes. So the exact time would be, let me just... Oh! Two years, 135 days, and four hours. Wow. So that's, that's a lot of energy and effort just to get a four-week trial on Stamps.com. <laughs> we heard from Alana. Alana says she listens to How to Do Everything while analyzing building materials for asbestos in a laboratory in Portsmouth in the UK. Alana, these next 15 seconds are for you. You know, the perfect song for you, Alana, is Fire and Rain by James Taylor, the original JT. Alana, I, I, I hope that you find every last bit of asbestos and dispose of it in a way that is good for you and the environment. And I hope that at the end of the day, you can punch out your time card and think, when it comes to asbestos, I am the bestest. I just can't remember who to send it to. I've seen five Hey, you know what's not the only podcast on NPR? This one's not. That's right. There's also other podcasts. For example, the All Songs Considered podcast from NPR Music. Uh, maybe you like discovering new music. All Songs Considered is there. Bob Boylan and Robin Hilton share the best of the best new and upcoming music, including a conversation with producer, DJ, and musician Mark Ronson. Oh. Find lots of songs you'll fall in love with on All Songs Considered every Tuesday at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. That does it for this week's show. What we learned today, Mike? Well, I learned that before we said boo, we said bow. I bet in in the 1500s, if you were a guy named Bo, mm -hmm. which these days is a cool name, tough guy, you were constantly, you, you didn't have any friends because every time you would introduce yourself, people would scream and run away. Yeah, that's true. Lonely Bo. Yeah, I guess it'd be like the equivalent nowadays of going up to somebody and saying, hi, I'm... Ah! I learned there's a tooth mouse who takes the teeth of children and builds uh, himself a tooth house. Do you think that to keep the house clean, you have to brush the house? So instead of window cleaners, like the guys who, you know, get on scaffolding and clean the windows, you have brushers. And you know, so you, sometimes you see them, they're brushing side to side, and that doesn't do anything. You Circular. gotta go up and down, guys. Circular motion. I'm not paying for side to side. How to Do Everything is produced by Nadia Wilson with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is truck driver Dave. Dave is uh, currently in charge of our um, our shipping operations in Australia. It's a very important, little-known part of this podcast. Keep it up, Dave. We need you out there in the outback. Also, our other intern, Candace, did stuff this week. 
We don't usually we don't usually have an intern who does stuff, so we should acknowledge Candace. Not as good a job this week, Candace, is truck driver Dave. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. You can visit our website, howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks. Oh!